0: Well, good morning. It is my joy to introduce Dr. Lutzer. Uh, For many of you, uh, probably don't need an introduction, Uh, but we are so grateful to God that he's brought Dr. Lutzer to minister to us this week. Uh, Dr. Lutzer, since 1980, uh, has served as the senior pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago until just a few years ago. uh, There was a Handoff there, and Pastor Lutzer is now Pastor Emeritus, and uh, he shared earlier what a joy it is for him to see the man that God has raised up and placed in that role. Now, Pastor Lutzer continues with the uh, media ministry that he's been involved with, uh, uh, run running to win, um, a couple other a couple other things that slipped my mind. Forgive me, um, but God has used him powerfully in that way, and also uh, the books. Many of you are familiar with the books. I think what is most encouraging, both from his public ministries and as we've gotten to know him this week, is that he is a man who loves God and desires to understand his word and how his word speaks to us in this day. How do we live faithfully? And so we are grateful not only that that's your heart, but God has gifted you, Dr. Thank Lutzer, God. to communicate those things. So uh, thank you for joining
1: us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And please don't forget that last night I gave you an honorary doctorate, okay? <laughs> there are some things that can slip your mind, but that's not one of them.
0: Thank you. I just want to return the mic, but oh I do want to thank you and
1: thank you thank you your your diploma is in the mail if you wonder why Dr Whitaker had to help me as I went up the stairs it's because um, I turned 80 years old a month ago and the good thing the good thing about old age is it doesn't last very long Something else that you should know about me is that my lovely wife, Rebecca, is here and uh, we have been married for 52 years. Why don't we just, uh, why don't you stand, honey, and let's let everybody see you. Now, there are many people who get married who have no idea what marriage is. Marriage, as has been said, is like getting a phone call in the middle of the night. First of all, you get a ring and then you wake up. (laughs) But there's something else about marriage I want to explain. Maybe you didn't have marriage counseling and you're getting it now in a single sentence. Marriage is two people solving problems together that they'd have never had if only they'd stayed single. That's what marriage is. So for 52 years, God has granted me this lovely woman, prayerful woman, wonderful mother, wonderful grandmother. And it's been a privilege to serve together for so many, many years. And there still might be some years ahead. I look forward to getting to know your pastor better, missionary in the Ukraine. My parents were German, but they were raised in the Ukraine. And uh, I'm anxious to know more about his ministry there. I often tell people that my father died at 106, my mother at 103. They lived so long that until my father died, I'm sure that most people in heaven thought that the Lutzers just didn't make it. They said, where are the Lutzers? But the Lutzers made it. I came from a godly family. Now, I asked your pastor this morning whether or not he had ever been to Moody Church and he said no. I was shocked. I mean, it's not necessary to visit Moody Church to go to heaven, but why take a chance? So I suggested that the elders get a fund together so that he can visit Moody Church in Chicago, one of the most beautiful churches in all the world. And that would be a great trip, and we'd be able to connect there. Uh, In Iowa, there was a little church, and a janitor was talking to a parishioner about the furnace. Somebody overheard the conversation and thought that he was talking about the pastor. What the janitor said was, the blower still works, but the fire's gone out. So I pray that as long as I live, I often pray, God, keep me alive until I die. As long as I live, I hope that the blower works and that the fire has not yet gone out. I want to say that there's been a wonderful spirit in this church. I'm very optimistic about your continuing ministry. And I thank God for the opportunity of being here today on your mission Sunday to talk about the topic of enlarging your world, enlarging your world. Later on, I'm gonna ask you to write some things down. You can begin even right now. In the previous service, we actually had some young people in the front who were taking notes, and God bless them in ways that are totally unpredictable and eternal. But. if you don't take notes that's fine but at the end i want you to do because i'm going to give you an assignment that you're supposed to do tomorrow i want to make it do tomorrow or at least sometime next week enlarging your world if you're a narcissist your world is yourself The thing about narcissism is it judges all circumstances by simply two questions, namely, how does this make me look and how does this make me feel? And the only world that you live in is yours. It's like the person at O'Hare Field who had a T-shirt that said, just worship me and we'll get along fine. And we're growing a whole generation of narcissists because of social media, and because of abuse in the home, so that people grow up and the only thing that really matters is themselves. That's their world. Then you have those who have a bigger world, a wider world, and that is their circle of friends. Rebecca and I once served in a small church where there were some rather wealthy people, and they went out to a restaurant, I think it was every Friday night, and somebody else paid, and it was always the same people The same stories, the same this, the same that, and that was their world, and we often commented that they never broke out of their world to see the other needs around them of people who had lesser opportunity. And by the way, Jesus said that when you call a feast, don't call all the rich people who can invite you back, but rather go out into the highways and the byways and get people who can never repay you, and you shall be rewarded at the resurrection of the just. So when you have your next meal, invite someone that you do not know, who do not have the opportunities that you do. Enlarge your world. Well, today we're going to talk about enlarging our world all around the world and making it bigger. And of course, in a sense, it begins here, but then it goes throughout the entire world because that is our parish. That is our opportunity. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask you to turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read a very familiar passage, and then we're going to talk about how you can enlarge your world. I'm in verse 32 of Matthew chapter 9. I pointed out to the people today that it's page 814, if you have a Bible like mine. And of course, I know many of you don't have a Bible. You brought your iPad, you brought your uh, computer, you brought everything, and that's fine. That's fine. But if you're under 40, under 40s, listen up, look at me for just a moment. This actually is a Bible. Do I have a witness that this is a Bible? Verse 32 And as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees says he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I'm going to give you four ways, maybe five, of how you can enlarge your world based on this text and the experience of Jesus that is recorded for us in God's holy word. First of all, we can enlarge our world by what we see. It's verse 36, and when he saw the crowds. May I ask you today what you see, because what you are determines what you see. What you love determines what you see. I've led tours to the sites of the Reformation, so we've been in Europe many times, and one of the things I noticed is that people see what they want to see and what they love to see. For example, those who loved gardens, as we drove past on a bus, somebody would say, oh, look at that beautiful garden. I certainly didn't see it, but people who were into gardens noticed the gardens. People who were into architecture noticed the architecture of every cathedral and every building we went into, because what you are determines what you see. Moody Church is a beautiful place. It has actually uh, Byzantine architecture. It was inspired by the Church of Holy Wisdom in Istanbul. And uh, it's awesome to see. It's huge. And and we give tours to people. And there was someone from Iowa who came for a tour and looked at this vast building and said, Boy, you could sure get a lot of hay in here. (laughs) What we are is what we see remember that little ditty that we learned in grade school at least we learned it in canada where i was raised kitty cat kitty cat what have you seen i've been to london to see the queen kitty cat kitty cat what saw you there i saw a mouse sitting under her chair Now, of course, when Kitty Cat got back from London, she gathered her human friends together to show them her slides. She didn't have video camera. And they said, what was the queen wearing? What was her crown? I never saw the crown. What was on the wall? The picture. I never saw any pictures. What did you see? I saw a mouse under her chair because she had a Kitty Cat heart because what you are determines what you see. If you are selfish, you don't see any needs around you. Because there are people, you know, who don't throw out signals necessarily and, and walk around with a big plaque saying, I'm needy. And, and you come to church and you don't even see the needs of the people that are in the pew with you. There may be a teenager whose father has left the home. There may be a single mother That needs care and encouragement and prayer there may be somebody who has special needs who needs special care but if you're selfish you don't see this all that you see is what you want to see remember the story of course in the fourth chapter of John where Jesus sits on the well Jacob's well and a woman comes and uh, she'd been married five times and uh, now living with her sixth husband. And uh, he wasn't even a husband, apparently. They were just living common law. I mean, who wants to get married after five times? And uh, what did the disciples see? They saw an immoral woman. They saw a biracial woman. After all, she was a Samaritan, a mixture of the Assyrians and the Israelites. They saw a a marginalized woman who probably came there at noon because no other women wanted to be with her. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw a woman with a need. He saw a wounded woman who could become a worshiper of Almighty God and have eternal life. That's what Jesus saw. What you are determines what you see. You can be sitting around in the greatest needs and not see anything. You may see nothing but what is on television. I was joking with the people this morning, I'm not sure if they took it as a joke, but um, I know that there was a football game last night and I looked it up on my phone and apparently Michigan lost and I I thought, thanks be to God. (laughs) Forgive me. But the point is that sometimes that's all we see. And I'm teasing you, of course, Michigan should have won, I'm sure, but there were contingencies. My point is that we become so earthbound that we forget the great needs around us. Enlarge your world by what you begin to see. Secondly, we enlarge our world by what we feel. The text says it there in verse 36, And he went out and he saw the crowds and had compassion on them. Compassion. He saw them, the Bible says, as harassed, harassed, and helpless. We live in a world that is hurting terribly. And I have to confess in my own life that there are times when I shut off my emotions because I simply can't take it. When you see the kind of devastation of children around the world with hunger and abuse and being sold into sexual slavery, I just, you can't even take it into your mind and your heart. You can't get your mind around it. But what we have to do is to recognize that it's time for us to be compassionate. Even if there are things that we can't do out there in other countries and what we see on the news, we can do things that are here where we begin to see human need around us, human opportunities that come our way and we need to feel again. Now, if you were brought up in an abused home, you may have turned off your emotions and it's hard for you to feel. If you've had some bad experiences, you can become a sociopath that has no feelings at all. They can destroy other people. They can wound other people and walk away feeling sorry for themselves. But are you a person whose heart is broken for the world because you actually feel? Remember the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. And if you've been to Israel, you know that when you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you do indeed go downhill. So Jesus said that there was a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho and was robbed by thieves. And a Levite came along. I mean, he was, after all, in the temple. He was part of the religious establishment. And he walked around on the other side. A priest came. And you'd think for sure he'd reach out but he walked around on the other side and it says both of them saw the man and they walked around. They probably went back to Jerusalem and said this, we need a social program to clean up the fact because the only reason that somebody would be robbed is because uh, of oppression. Therefore, what we need to do is to get people more money and then we'll take care of the robbery. And while we're at it, let's take care of all the knives that are in Jerusalem, which may have been part of the problem, but there's a man bleeding along the side of the road, thank you very much. And a Samaritan, biracial Samaritan, is the one who reached out, took the man to an inn, and said to the innkeeper, whatever you spend taking care of this man, put it on my bill, I'm going to pay you. My dear friend, what we have to do is to recognize that God has brought to us here in America broken people, biracial people, people from another country, from another race, from another skin color. Now, it's very important for us to recognize that the state is not the church. The state has a responsibility to keep us safe, to keep secure borders. The symbol of the state is the sword. But the symbol of the the church is the cross. And even if people are here who we think shouldn't be here or are here illegally, we have a responsibility and the privilege to meet needs wherever we find them. I actually heard an amen. I learned yesterday at the breakfast that in Michigan it's still legal to say amen might not be in Chicago, but in Michigan it is. Folks, I know somebody who's reaching out to Syrians. This is actually in Canada. He gives them vegetables, he takes them places, he's built friendships with their children. They are inviting him into their homes all the time and he prays with them in the name of Jesus. Many of them are saying, we don't want to follow Muhammad anymore, we want to follow Jesus Christ, because opportunity comes to us to our doorsteps, and here in America with various peoples from various parts of the world, we have a responsibility to reach out to them and say, whoever God brings to our doorstep, he is the one that we must minister to, just like the good Samaritan who ministered to the broken man along the trail. Let me ask you something. Is your heart so hard that you are no longer touched and deeply grieved by the pain in this world? I know that we can't put our arms around the whole world and bear its pain, but can you bear the pain of the neighbors, the person who the young mother who died of COVID and left the children. Can you bear that pain? When you do, you begin to expand your world by what you see, by what you feel. And third, we expand our world also by how we pray and how we pray. Jesus said this, pray, I think it's verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers into his harvest. Have you ever prayed that prayer? You say, well, I've prayed for various missionaries. Have you ever prayed that God would raise up more missionaries and more people for the harvest field within your church? Not only abroad, but here. Have you prayed that way? I know that uh, having been born on a farm in Saskatchewan, Canada, Five miles from a town of 75 people and we had harvest time. We never hired a man when we were plowing the field, even when we were seeding. But when harvest came, it was all hands on deck. We even brought in a hired man to help us because it's harvest. And what Jesus is saying is the harvest is bigger than then the workmen to cover it. So pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. Now, in the Greek text, the phrase send out, this is actually a dumbed-down translation. I mean, it's a good translation, but it, it doesn't get the full force of what Jesus said. In the Greek text, the word is ekbalo, Ek is a preposition which means out of. Balo means to cast out or to thrust out. It's the same word that is used when it talks about the fact that Jesus cast out demons. He ek the demons. And Jesus is praying that you and I should ek balo. We should pray that the Lord of the harvest from this congregation would raise up harvesters to go into his harvest. That's our responsibility to have that privilege to say that we are involved in the harvest but we need more harvesters. Elsewhere Jesus when he was at the woman at the well and that story said the harvest is ripe but the laborers are few. We're too much into ourselves. We are self-driven rather than God-driven. And Jesus said that we should pray that. Now you say, well, why does Jesus ask us to pray that? Because after all, God can do whatever he wants to do. He can raise up laborers without our prayers, certainly. But God gives us the privilege of saying we are actually co-laborers together with God, as Paul says it. There is a synergy between us and the plan of the almighty now God is not hampered because of human disobedience God does whatever he wants to do I think this morning and by the way I so appreciated the music I think that this morning we had a song that in effect said that that God is God and have you ever noticed that he does whatever he wants to do and he doesn't always do what I think he should. Did you know that God blesses people who disagree with me, for example? And, you know, he does things that I wouldn't do if I were God. So God does whatever he wants. But God says, You are co workers along with me in the harvest. What a privilege to connect sinner and saint in the harvest fields. Of the world. So, how do we enlarge our world? By what we see, by how we feel, the compassion that we have, and the brokenness that we should have over this world. But we also enlarge our world by how we pray. If you've never prayed it before, pray that the Lord of the harvest will ekbalo, will cast out labors into his harvest field. But we also enlarge our world by how we obey, by how we obey. Now I'm going to translate and transition to the whole issue of the Great Commission. And you don't have to turn to that passage, you probably know it by memory. But I want us to remember what Jesus said in his last words to the disciples, and that the Great Commission actually has four universal statements— Four universal statements. First of all, um, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. If I were a missionary in Nepal, and I understand that you folks do have one here, or a missionary to Uganda, and I know that your church sends missionaries to different parts of the world, I would really hang on to this verse with tenacity All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means you don't go any part of the world to any part of the world without Jesus going with you because he ends by saying, I'm with you always. But it's all authority. And we need to know even amidst the political wrangling that we are involved in today and that we see played out, We need to remember the sovereignty of God who says in the book of Daniel that God is the one who raises up rulers. He is the one that brings them down. Our greatest need is always to see God, to see him in his sovereignty and greatness. And Jesus says, all authority is given unto me. I can save those whom I determine to save. I am the Lord of the harvest, the evangelist, is God. He's the only one who can save people. Now, He saves people through our witness. But only God is the evangelist. You as parents can't save your child, thank you very much. You can't force them to believe. You can't cause them to believe. You can teach them the Word of God. You can pray for them. You can encourage them. You can um, do everything that you can to, to let it... But the actual act of conversion is an act of God, it is a miracle of God that only God can do. Years ago I used to teach preaching and every fall, it was always a fall course, I took the students to a cemetery. I asked them to choose a tombstone and to preach to the dead. I thought that would be great practice for those who are going to be pastors and preachers. Just get used to preaching to a cemetery and you'll do well in your church. Now, I have to tell you, Dr. Whitaker, that most of the time the students didn't do it. I mean, the blood drained from their faces. They thought that this was weird. So I did it. I remember going to his tombstone that said, Jonathan, somebody died 1912 or whatever. And I stood there and I said, Jonathan, stand up. It's the day of resurrection. And then I waited for resurrection. Thankfully, none came. (laughs) I asked the students, I said, how do you think I felt doing that? And I remember one expressively saying, pretty stupid. I said, yep. And that's how stupid you are every time you preach the gospel. You're expecting the dead to rise, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and only God can do those miracles. And so what we do is we preach like Ezekiel to dead bones even, and then God by the Spirit comes and puts those bones together and gives them life. And so what we need to do is to recognize we don't save anybody. He's the Lord of the harvest. He converts, but he uses us in the process and says, you have the privilege of being a co-worker in my vineyard. So pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust forth labors. So the first universal is Jesus said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. The next universal is, tell them to all nations, teach all nations. You say, well, we can't go to all nations. No, you can't. I can't go to all nations. But you know what? We can if we send a substitute. You folks have missionaries here who represent you in various countries of the world. You can't go, but they can and they're a substitute for you. And through your prayers and through your intercession, you become co-laborers also with them. And so in that sense, you do go around the world. I heard about a woman who was in a uh, retirement center. Nothing wrong with going to a retirement center. In fact, uh, someday maybe I'll be at a retirement center. There are those who go to Boca Raton. Boca Raton, Florida is the place where old people go, by the way, to visit their parents. <laughs> and that's fine. But they spend the remaining days when they still have their wits about them and the opportunities of playing shuffleboard for the rest of their lives. And there's nothing wrong with golfing. I, I played golf once, got the highest score, was told I lost. I never (laughs) went back again. Took me six strokes to get a hole in one. There's nothing wrong with that. But folks, one of the most wasted energy and opportunity is those who retire and spend the rest of their life fiddling around when the world is in need and when they could be blessing other people. There was one woman in a retirement center who got sick and tired of playing table games every evening. She said, I have to make a better investment than this. She went to her church. She asked for all their missionaries. As I recall, there were 70. She began to write personal letters to all the missionaries. She prayed for their children. She kept in touch with them. She encouraged them because she said, in effect, before I meet Jesus, I want to make an investment that makes a difference. And fiddling your retirement away is not going to make a difference. I'm not surprised I didn't get an amen there. Notice that Jesus says all authority, all nations, in some way involved. And the other way is money. Dr. Whitaker didn't ask me to comment on money, but I love to preach on money, especially when it has nothing to do with anything I'm promoting. You know the, um, this old line that you can't take it with you? It's from the devil. Of course you can take it with you but you have to transmute it into a form that will meet you on the other side. That's what Jesus said, lay up plenty of treasures in heaven, lay them up there, where moth and rust doth not corrupt. He said in a parable, invest your funds in such a way that you will have people who will meet you when you come into everlasting habitations and they will say, part of the reason I'm here is because you gave your investment. Don't die rich, give it away like my parents did, and uh, then there's nothing for the kids to fight over. <laughs> now it's okay, you know, to, uh, to leave your children an inheritance. But listen, use your funds, invest it, so that you will take them with you, and they will meet you on the other side. So Jesus said, uh, you know, all authority, all nations, all things, that Christ is the only way to the Father and the gospel is the only way for people to be saved. And then the fourth universal is, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The omnipresence of God, the fact that Jesus Christ is with us no matter where we are. There may be hard ground, it may be very discouraging, but we continue to go. Now here's the thing, you can hear this sermon You can go home, and you can be unchanged. But I want you to think differently. We can talk about the nations of the world, but what about the people that you work with tomorrow? What about the students that you're going to be with? Have you ever connected with them spiritually and given them some good reason to believe on Jesus? Have you ever witnessed to them, or are you shamed into silence? I wrote a book entitled, We Will Not Be Silent, because the Church of Jesus Christ today, for many reasons, is often shamed into silence about a lot of different issues. But let us uh, build bridges. The needs are great. Human beings haven't changed. They're still longing for hope. They're longing for meaning. So here's what I'm gonna do, and now it's time for all of you to take notes. I'm going to give you questions that you can use to begin a spiritual conversation. You'd be surprised at the number of Christians who don't have those kinds of questions. So they say, you know, are you a Christian? That's a bad way to begin a spiritual conversation because a Christian today can be defined in many different ways. And yeah, I was brought up in the church, I was baptized, and yeah, I'm a Christian. Here's a question that I've used. I'm sure hundreds of times. Used it often when I was on a plane back in the days when we didn't wear masks and we could actually talk to the person next to us. Tell me, where are you on your spiritual journey? Ask somebody that. Where are you on your spiritual journey? Let them talk. They may say, well, you know, I once went to church, but it was turned off because of this and this. Ask them other questions that will grow out of that. Build that relationship. Find out where they are at on their spiritual journey. And then after you've talked to them and asked them many questions, you can transition and say, well, let me tell you about where I'm at and give your testimony. Let them deal with that issue. Build that relationship. Or here's one that I know 100% of the time, 100% of the time, you'll get a yes to. Not 99% of the time, but 100% of the time. I haven't used this one as often, but I have used it even for waitresses, May I share with you what somebody once shared with me that changed my life. May I share with you what somebody else shared with me that changed my life. Nobody will say, no, don't share that. Everybody is curious and saying, sure. And then give them your testimony. Maybe it was a parent who shared with you the gospel, maybe it was a friend, however you came to Christ, let them know what changed you. Build those relationships, or ask what is most important to you, or how much adult consideration have you given to Jesus? And I say adult consideration because most people think of Jesus in terms of fairy tales and miracles and all those things. How much adult consideration? have you given to Jesus what do you think of him and then let them talk and ask questions and then you share them again who Jesus really is we have a message that the world needs to hear but there's so much clutter there's so much hostility Politically, religiously, COVID, whatever. And by the way, COVID has given us more opportunities to witness because people are now aware of their mortality. Even the rich die of COVID. So here's what we need to do. We need to think that we begin in our Jerusalem, as Jesus said, and then we spread out from there. So I want you to do that this week. I want you to become accountable to somebody to witness to someone to the gospel. Don't go home and just simply let things be as they have been. You and I, myself included, we need to see the whole world. We have a message of hope to a very hurting, confused, addicted world. Many years ago when the first George Bush was president, My daughter and I were in Washington, D.C., and I was speaking in a church, and there was a Secret Service agent there who said that, uh, do you want to go to the, see the Oval Office tomorrow? Because the president was out of town, it was the, uh, it was a weekend in which he was at Camp David, actually, I think it was Memorial Day. And there are some times when somebody asks you a question, you have to pray about it, but there are other times that it is so obviously God's will that instantly I said yes. We arrived the next day at one of those little huts that you see on the news, and the Secret Service agents looked at us, and then they looked at the man who was with us, and they said, you're with him. Uh, They said, just go on in. When you get to the door of the White House, there were more agents there, But they looked at us, they looked at who we were with, and they said, you can go on in. I'm sure security is much uh, tighter now, but in those days, that's the way it was. Now, when you get to the door of the Oval Office, there was a guard standing there, and he glanced at us, he glanced at the agent, and we could go in. We couldn't go to the president's desk, but we could step into the doorway of the Oval Office. Later on, I was thinking that someday, We are going to be escorted into the presence of God. And let's use our imagination that there are centuries of angels all along the way. And the angels see us with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, and they say, you're with him, go on in. You're with him, go on in. But then we see the glory of God and we see the holiness of God for the first time as we've never seen it before. And we begin to have flashbacks regarding all the sin that we've committed because among us there are even criminals and people who've done horrible things and even those of us who haven't done those very horrible things we ourselves are overcome by guilt and we think to ourselves we cannot go in but an angel says if you're with him go on in we come into the presence of the almighty And the son says to the father, Father, these are my redeemed for whom I shed my blood. And the father says, I have inspected them very carefully, and I find no fault in them. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, the righteousness of Christ. It's a message of hope. It's a message of truth. It's a message of passion for every single believer. And the question is, are we willing to enlarge our world so that others may hear the good news? Let me pray for you as I pray for myself. Father, we thank you today that Jesus had eyes to see, that he was able to feel. He taught us to pray, but he also taught us to go. And he reminded us that he is the Lord of the harvest. We ask for these dear people, Lord. I ask that from this congregation, you might ekbalo people, uh, thrust them into the harvest field, which is so ripe and so broken. Help us, Lord, we pray, to touch the lives of all whom we encounter for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.